Hey, folks, this is the Trust in the Process podcast. My name is Travis Fritz. I am a brewer and owner of Old Nation Brewing Company in Michigan. Uh, Trust in the Process is a podcast where we speak most commonly to brewers and uh, sales folks and everybody from the brewing sort of side of, of the alcohol industry. But today we have the unique pleasure uh, and honor of having uh, writer Lou Bryson uh, on the podcast. Lou has... Well, you started your career as, I think, a librarian and an inspiring yes. writer. Sometime around 1996, you started writing about whiskey professionally uh, and became not only just a writer of whiskey, but the uh, the editor of Whiskey Advocate magazine. Managing editor, but yeah. That is, uh, that is, that's pretty, that's that's quite a leap, it seems like. Uh, and, and that success <laughs> you were able to follow through until now, uh, ending your tenure at uh, t at uh, Whiskey Advocate in 2015. Yep. Um, you've written four books. One has also had a PBS special about it, I believe. Is that uh, right? Local PBS, but yeah. Local PBS. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you're on TV. You're on TV. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I like the way you look at that. <laughs> yeah. Why not be positive about it? Um, so anyway, I, I, there, there's so much to talk about that you've done and that you've been involved in and how deeply you've gone into those things that, you know, whiskey, for example, for 20 years, you wrote about and talked to people in the industry about and, you know, visited. And, I mean, what a wealth of information. Um, I am really excited to talk to you about all of this kind of stuff. Um, so I welcome you here and, and thank you so much for taking the time out to come on a podcast that may have just my salespeople watching. I really <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> All right. I know that feeling too. I've got a, uh, a, a, regular cast we do on, uh, I guess our alternate Tuesdays now called a sip of knowledge. And it's, it's almost all industry people. And there's like, you know, 30 to 50 people at most watching each show. And I'm like, eh, why, what, yeah, what the hell? Yeah. I would be looking yeah. for that one name I don't know. Then it'll be worth it. You right, know I mean? right. And, and you know, <laughs> if nothing else, it helps me think about the stuff. Right. So yeah. Well, that's, that's kind valuable. of that's that is selfishly what this is. So let's yeah. let's let's, yeah. let's engage. Let's engage in this conversation. Whiskey, it's 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 easy to say, and I read a lot of articles now. Uh, you know about whiskey having some sort of a renaissance, and I've always been a whiskey drinker. Um, I, is it? I guess it is. Oh, God, yeah. Oh, most definitely. Because when I started writing about whiskey back in 97, and the funny thing is, I only realized this about three years ago, because I was just like, oh, I'm doing this. Yeah, I'm writing about whiskey. Yeah, da, da, da. About three years ago, I'm like, wow, starting to write about whiskey in 96, 97 was not smart. No. <laughs> I mean, seriously, the first, I don't know, at least two years I was writing about whiskey, most of the stories I was writing included some version of well, whiskey sales didn't go down quite as much this year. And that was the good news. That's how the only thing that was getting better was Irish. Irish has been on the up since 1990. On the other hand, then you find out that that was because it was essentially dead right. in like 1976. I'm like, great, great. Right. You know, and then right. there was rye whiskey. Everybody's all excited about rye whiskey now. In, in 1996, total production in the United States was 16,000 cases. 16,000 wow. cases. That's like three dudes. I know. Come on. That's like, <laughs> no, you know what that is? That's Wisconsin, essentially. Right, exactly. You know? So, exactly. God almighty. So, yeah, no, right. it's the, the turnaround's been amazing. Well, um, now there's, you know, it's, it's a very, uh, 
it's very hip beverage now. You know what I mean? And, like, and we have over 2,000 distilleries. Right. You know, and essentially two-thirds of those are making whiskey because everybody not, wants to make whiskey. I, it's right. cool. Yeah. Well, I'm not going to compare it to any other spirit necessarily, but I have always found that whiskey in isolation has more, uh, in its varied forms, has has more nuance that that I can appreciate. Um, I mean, you know, it's like my old boss always used to say at Whiskey Advocate, you don't see any magazines about vodka. Right. I guess that's, yeah, okay, yeah. you did it. That's good. We, we can compare that. I mean. Oh, sure. You know. <laughs> Um, which which liquor is superior is maybe not the conversation I want to get into. Mm. Let's just assume that whiskey is for the sake of <laughs> conversation. <laughs> um, and I suppose, you know what what I'm. You know the funny thing is though I have to say, that being said, my second favorite spirit is vodka. I just I love sitting down and like sipping or even just like I, I do uh, what they call thimble shots. So it's like. I don't know, between a quarter and a half ounce, it's chilled, and it's bang, and it's the experience. It's the 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 clean burst. It's uh, it's a palate cleanser. I, I mean, I there's a couple of uh, BYO eh, Russian Russian Eastern European. Uh, actually, the one place we used to go in Philly was a, a restaurant called Uzbekistan, which was Uzbek cuisine. And you know, between every couple of courses. Let's throw boom. I love well, that it's, shit. It's undoubtable that <laughs> I gotta yeah, be honest. time and a place <laughs> for everything. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, a little little divergence. No, there. no, not at all. Um, yeah, maybe vodka, maybe vodka is the is the is the well-made pilsner of the liquor world. Maybe we can yeah. make that a little Yeah, there you go. Um, well, that, maybe that it's because maybe, maybe. Is it a, listen, I'm a, I, I was trained as a brewer in Berlin. We hate Kolsch, right? <laughs> Um, I can tell you the whole story. Actually, I don't hate Coles, but man, I was trained to hate it. Oh, bad. Um, so for me, I guess my point is I'm, I'm 43 years old. I turned 43 this year. Um, and, uh, so I, I, I do remember when whiskey was kind of like the, the, the cowboy drink, kind of the tough guy drink. That yep. was the was sort of the cultural, drink. you know, if you saw somebody drinking whiskey in a movie, they Scotch, were... of course. Oh, yeah, my oh gosh. absolutely right. Well, oh, that's yeah, still you're... kind of a business tough guy. Yeah. Um, but you know, yeah. if you saw somebody drinking bourbon, let's say, or Irish whiskey in a movie, it was a priest, somebody that was about to get into a fight or just did, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or or a cowboy, like right, or a soldier, or, or somebody just died, or somebody just died, which or may coincide with the priest. Yep. Yep. Um, so now you know, of course, it's a thing to be you know examined and studied and and consumed in groups where it's discussed and, you know, all this kind of stuff, you saw that, that shift happen. Oh, I'm, I assuming, did, yeah. I'm assuming that you, that yep. shift happened. Assuming it did, yep. you saw it. What yeah, did it, it really did. Like? Um, you know, it's one of those, some of it is, is that situation where you're inside it and you don't notice it. Um, yeah. But uh, like in the last five years, um, I've actually been writing about it because it's a thing. And, you know, <laughs> you know, you get these people who are like just all freaking fired up on whiskey and they're going this, that, and the other, and the old this, and, and, you know, it's not what it used to be. And these whiskeys is not as good as they were. Okay. Like, when did you start drinking whiskey? Uh, 2017. 
you know, and you don't want to, you don't want to pull out the. Oh, I was drinking whiskey before, but come but on, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, don't be, don't be flaunting around this bullshit. You don't even know. You know this because someone right. else told you. One and two, I've noticed a lot of these newer whiskey drinkers, the guys that you're talking about, um, were buying whatever craft whiskey seven years ago, six years yeah. ago. And that whiskey, you know, some of it was good. Some of it was just over-oaked. A lot of it was not. I mean, I got to be honest, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's changed. I, we see this in craft beer, too, man. There's a level, you know, people that are, who are on the path of their 10,000 hours, let's say. There's a, there's a level at which, maybe in the bell curve, people kind of perch. And they, you know, they may perch there for their entire drinking life, you know, where it is. I like things that are difficult for other people to handle, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah. like a badge of honor. I'm not, maybe they're expressing their masculinity somehow. I, I don't know, but I see it all the time. And I see it in beer. That yes. Is, and I see it in whiskey too. And it's maybe what you're talking about. The thing, one of the things that has been most, oh, what? No, I'll say it, but most tiresome about watching uh, whiskey connoisseurship evolve is how they find ways to parallel the IBU worship of craft beer drinkers. Yes. You know, okay. Great. It's yes, got to be hoppier. It's got to be more sour. It's got to be older. It's got to right. be more funky. And they do yeah. it with, with peat. You know, they want the super peated whiskey. If it's not peated, it's shite. Uh, they want cask strength. You know, they don't want any, you know, 80, all 80 proof whiskeys are bad. Get them out of here. We don't have time for them. Okay. And of course they want rare, you know, they want barrel picks. They want unfiltered, un, uh, unproofed, just right out of the barrel. That's what they want, but not bookers because that comes from a big distiller. I'm like, what? Right. Love of God, you know? <laughs> and, and the thing I got to tell you, I was just talking about this yesterday with my wife, um, so I'm going to bring it up. Uh, one of the things that these guys they they come charging on to a you know whatever some kind of online whiskey group. We'll just leave it at that. And they cannot wait to tell you that Jack Daniels is hot garbage and they never ever drink it because that's just not good whiskey and it's no good. And I got to tell you, one of the best days I ever had drinking whiskey was sitting in an ice fishing shack with my boss at Whiskey Advocate and the brand manager from Jack Daniels, and he hauled out a bottle of black. And I'm like, yeah, what the hell? We necked over half the bottle sitting in that fishing shack, and it was awesome. Yeah. No? Was it yeah. the best whiskey ever right then? Yeah. Set and setting, right? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean, it didn't, didn't hurt that there was no other whiskey literally within two miles of us, but... Well, you... you write about beer. This is not news to you, right? This right. is the same thing happens with, you know, craft beer people, particularly again, at that first ramp of the bell curve, wherever they be, you know, same thing. Oh, I don't, I never drink Budweiser. It's the worst, right? It's just yep. the worst. I can't imagine how anyone would drink that. Well, listen, bud, I don't drink Budweiser either, right? Um, unless I'm on a fishing boat and it's 85 degrees outside, and somebody's got a cold one, and then I enjoy it very much because that's what it's for. There's a time yeah. and a place yeah. for everything. Is it a crime that every time and place for 80% of the beer drinkers in the U.S. is, you know, Miller time? Maybe. But 
that doesn't make it a bad product. It's exactly what it's supposed to be, right? right. <laughs> um, the Scottish Scottish distillers have a, a saying. It's a Scottish saying, but they apply it to whiskey a lot. They say horses for courses. Right. So, you know, the blended whiskey is for putting in a highball. Yep. Okay. That's what it's for. Yep. Canadian. Canadian whiskey is for mixing with ginger ale. That's what it's made for. They very carefully design it to do that. And it's yep. really good at it. Yes. What yes. do you want? Right. Well, what you want is a hairy chested caveman coming. <laughs> nose, That's what you right? want. Yeah. With yeah. a whiskey that tastes like coal smoke. And I don't, I don't oily coal smoke, dude. I don't want that. Right. No, I don't want that. I'm not going to try right. and yuck somebody else's yum necessarily. Mm. But if that's kind of where you're at and nothing else matters, and this happens in beer all the time too, right? With Imperial Stouts or whatever, man. Right. Um, you know, if that's where you're at and you're not going to, you're not going to move off that hill. I, I don't know how much of a conversation we can really have about beer, right? Or whiskey or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. You've already <laughs> made up your mind. Right. Um, I mean, that was one of the things I, I said in my, my first whiskey book. You know, you're going to run into people who are going to tell you, this whiskey here, this brand, this is the best. Right. For what? It's just over then. What do you think? <laughs> <Right. laughs> now, oh, my God. <clears throat> this is my favorite because of these reasons. I love Exactly. Them, right? Exactly. I do not care for this whiskey because of yada, yada, yada. But this whole, this whiskey sucks. This whiskey right. is garbage. Right. Shut up. Yeah. Well, it's a bunch of young dudes, right? Um, Not have, always that young. Yeah, well, yeah, you're, right, you're right. Let me say frustrated dudes. Okay. Uh, <laughs> in one way or another, who are, uh, you know, again, I, I always, you know, derisively say they're expressing their masculinity through the way they talk about something that they drink. Uh, but Seen it may be it. different. Seen women do it. Yeah, no, sure. Well, too. Yeah, it's an e then, let's equal say. opportunity stupidity. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, that's right. That's it's uh, it's it's well. Then then there's another thing, right? That whiskey now has spread out to to where it's 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 ubiquitous, right? If you are interested, if it's ubiquitous, right? Yeah, sure, okay. ubiquitous. Sure. <laughs> if you're, you know, if you're, I guess my point in saying that was this. It seems like now the sort of the zeitgeist is at a point where if you are interested in examining the liquor that you drink, then you are probably a whiskey drinker, right? Um, and that may have always been true, but that seems like something mm. folks, most folks are pretty much aware of. Now, that, that is one thing I have noticed over the last 25 years. Whiskey drinkers know an amazing amount more than they used to. You know, okay. when, you know, when I was, well, I'm in 63 now, when I was 40, well, first off, if you go into a bar, there were probably three whiskeys <laughs> and and more than likely 20 different flavored vodkas, um, right. which, <laughs> why? Right. Um, but but literally three whiskeys, there would be like, uh, there'd be Jack, um, there might be Dewar's, um, and there'd probably be Jim Beam. Yeah, I mean, those three were the, were the big three. Uh, depending on what part of the country you're in, you know, some, some uh, parts of the country would be... Um, Evan Williams, sometimes sure. it would be, you know, wild turkey. Right. right. But but those were and, and sometimes you'd get a Johnny Walker red instead of the doors, right. whatever. Right. But you know, if there was if there were six whiskeys, whiskey bar. Right. Whoa. Right. Absolutely. Now, right. Oh my God. Right. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a, it's wonderful, right? It's 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 I think Absolutely. what I think it's what um it seems almost like 
all whiskey now kind of uh, kind of perches on that seat that Scotch used to, right? Yes. Um, well, or wants to. Or wants to. Sure. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. I'm not talking about Cuddy Sark. No, um, no, and well, and meanwhile, you know, whiskey is looking around like, where's a where's a better seat? Where, is there a right. bigger, higher seat that I can right. sit up on now? Could I? Right. Well, and God bless. Right. Oh yeah, that's how it works. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, to kind of bring this into 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 craft beer uh, a little bit, um, you know, I, I've been a professional brewer for twenty years. Um, just to give you my very brief CV, I, I studied at the Technical University in Berlin at the VLB um, in 2001 and 2002. Uh, did some apprenticeship um, work in Central Europe and then here in the U.S. Went back, came, became a, a Braumeister um, and then came back here in about 2003 and uh, late 2003 and started working in breweries in Michigan and have been here in Michigan for most of the then to 20 years following. All right. Um, but, you know, like any brewer, I bebop around. I have friends all over the country who do this job. And, you know, we're, we're transient people, um, except for me. Um, <laughs> but in those 20 years, I've seen, a, I mean, a, a kind of a, a crest and a, a fall and another crest and a fall and these changing uh, tastes and the, the, the market itself changing and how um, you know, these kind of, uh, I'll say thought leaders, for lack of a better term, will uh, sort of have these ideas and it'll take maybe 10 or 15 years for them to be writ large. And, and most folks have those same opinions. It has been a crazy ride for the last 20 years for if, if you make a living making beer, coming up with the beer, brewing it, trying to put it out on the market and selling it. And I, mean, I do the see parallels. In the marketplace in, alone. Yes. You know, in, in literally how it's sold and where it's sold. Yeah. Just that <laughs> is. Thank you for segueing the way that I wanted to. Um, <laughs> um, you, that was helpful. So <laughs> one of the things that we face as craft brewers is, an, is a need because we don't have advertising budgets or gigantic sales forces or necessarily national representation is to then uh, motivate folks to buy our product by making new products and staying relevant by being novel in some cases, um, particularly your first 20,000 barrels or so. I think that's 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 where you're at. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that makes that difficult and many other things difficult are um, liquor control commissions, liquor control boards. States have different names for them. Yeah. Um, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, but I want to put a quarter in and get a dollar back. On your experience with uh, particularly the Pennsylvania Liquor Control Board or any uh, body of that nature. Um, you know, I was about to say my major problem with the, the PLCB, but uh, I mean, you know, it's a real, oh, I have all these, pick one, go ahead. Yeah, right. Um, but, um, I mean, talking about beer, uh, <laughs> you know, we, first off until about, um, I want to say it was 2016, we had to buy beer by the case. Yes. I remember yeah. I was selling or, beer. Or if you went to a bar, you could buy up to a 12 pack, but no more. And then literally, if you took your purchase and stepped outside the door and stepped back in, still carrying it, you could buy another 12-pack. 
And this was something that every Pennsylvanian who drank beer knew. Uh, we'll oh. say anyone over 25. Okay. Okay. You know, I, I worked <laughs> retail a little bit, and it's amazing how everyone seemed to forget that. And you'd never seen so many people for leaving their IDs in the car. Right. Did you really? Did you? Because I always leave my license in the car. Always. Even yes. though there's a special slot in my wallet for that. <laughs> sure, pal. Okay. There See you go. Ya. There you go. Well, um, you know, yeah. So we had all these. I mean, they're just bizarre rules about about how you were allowed to buy beer. We didn't have a thing about cold beer. Cold beer was fine. There wasn't. You didn't like charge extra for it or anything. It was fine. I mean, I know that what Indiana. Yes. Can't buy cold beer. Yeah. No, um, you can't buy cold beer in grocery stores in Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, now we think that we can buy beer in grocery stores, but we can't really because. Okay. What they did was, and this is a, a, a perfect example of one of my, seriously, one of my biggest problems with the PLCB, they arbitrarily decided that a supermarket could buy a bar license, which we call a restaurant license, uh, and they could sell beer under that 12-pack limit, just like a bar, except they had to put in 30 seats in a cafe. Oh, so, nice. so you get these supermarkets that have this room with 30 seats and, and tables that there's hardly ever anyone in because nobody's really going there to get a drink. And, and that, that's just giving up real estate to sell. Exactly. And, and on top of that, you can't buy it at the same registers that you buy the food. You have to have a separate, oh. at least one separate register. I don't see the problem. That seems completely reasonable to me. Sure, sure, sure. and and you have to divide the 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 premises so that it's legal, but you don't have to have a wall or a door or anything. Just a, a I think it's a three foot high bollard um, that does. Could we just sure. stop? Yeah, I, I, how long I wonder did it take for you know I, I imagine some dudes in in uh, sport coats smoking cigars in a in a in a dimly lit room for hours coming up with this shit. Do you know who wrote those rules? Please. The, the beer wholesalers of in course. 1934. Yes, I, because I talked to a guy who was at that time, I don't know, he was one of the officers in the, in the Pennsylvania Malt Beverage Distributors Association. I can't remember what he was, but he was an old dude then. And he had been the clerk of the lawyer who had written the laws in 1934. Wow. Wow. And that's and they and they went to the Pennsylvania legislature and they're like, hey, you know what? Repeal. How about this? And they're like, yeah, it's easier than writing it. Sure, why not? <laughs> and that's how we got the case law. And that's how we got the 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 twelve pack limit. So yeah. <laughs> let's let's maybe let's maybe let's imagine that people who aren't directly employed by me uh will watch this the podcast. <laughs> and and it's say, a possibility. I mean, let's shoot for the stars. Why not? Um, so uh, I, let's zoom out a little bit um, and explain what the proposed purpose of liquor control commissions uh, in various states are. It's fair to say that every state, to my knowledge, to my knowledge. Uh, with the exception of Washington, D.C., has a liquor control I was just about to say the district <laughs> is the Wild West. They don't yeah. give a damn. You Although they seem program. to have some weird laws about growlers. Of all really? things to give a shit about, right? I don't know. It's not clear. Yeah, anyway, how it happened, I mean, it all comes back to the 21st Amendment. Mm -hmm. um, because um, this is one of the weird things. All right, we get the uh, the 18th Amendment. We get prohibition. 
which is largely because uh, prohibitionists agitated for a national law because they were just losing their shit that some states had prohibition and others didn't. And the people who had prohibition, the people there could just go to the other state and buy booze. Right. And it drove them insane. They started at a, at, a, at a low level. They're like, this town is now prohibition, but they can just go to that town. So we need a, a county law. We need a state law. We need a national law. And then, of course, we just started bringing in booze from Canada. But that's a whole other story. Well, um, I'm, I'm here in Michigan. I used to work in Detroit. That's still part of the life. There you are. There you are. <laughs> so um, the funny thing is when repeal comes along, the anti-alcohol forces had been so strong that if you look at um, like the first five years after Prohibition, you see the people who were instrumental in getting it overturned are, are metaphorically constantly looking over their shoulders for the Prohibition people to come back. And they were done. They were smashed and no one realized it. You know, at the time, they thought that they were compromising. And I'm like, you compromised with no one because right. no one against you had any power whatsoever. But that's how we got stuck with all this shit. It all comes from the 30s. It all comes from the 30s. Yeah, and this is all these, you know, there were a couple of, I mean, Pennsylvania had a, a, a um, you know, like a post-dry governor, Gifford Pinchot, who in almost everything else was a great guy. He was an, an ardent conservationist, um, you know, was used as a, um, I mean, he was involved in the national park system. They picked him up and, and put him to work there, but he was absolutely against alcohol. And he's the guy who pushed through a bunch of our crazy liquor laws. And again, you know, he had nothing. He had nobody really supporting him, but we put this stuff through. Through that lens, is there a way to look in Pennsylvania specifically, which I am only vaguely familiar with, and really only with any intimacy in the last three or four years, right? So it's okay. changed. Um, is there any point at which those laws that you've looked at and argued about for some time uh, don't look punitive to you, to the producer or seller of alcohol? Yeah, I mean... Some of them, of course, are common sense, right? And practical. And yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think you do need... but. I, I've proposed, not that anyone listens to me, you could lose the liquor control authorities across the country and split up their functions among existing agencies that are present in every other state, like um, uh, education for anti-alcohol education. That'd be fine to put them there. Taxation, you have a Department of Revenue. Use 100%. it. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, licensing. Well, you have either an agriculture department or you have literally a licensing department for every other damn thing like nail shops and barbers, for God's yeah. sake. Yeah. Do the same thing. Right. Um, you know, almost every, no, actually every single thing that all these liquor authorities could do duplicates efforts that's already being done by other agencies. Just get rid of it. Right, right. Well, and, you know, it, it goes down to... Um, See, but again, what it comes back to is the 21st Amendment. I, I, I need to finish that thought. Because what the 21st Amendment did, because everybody was so freaked out about, you know, the individual states' rights to do this and that, the 21st Amendment very strongly 
gives every state the ability to legislate how alcohol is sold and taxed in their state to the point where it is illegal for me to go to New Jersey and buy a bottle of booze and bring it back to Pennsylvania. Weirdly, I can fly to New Zealand and bring back a bottle of booze and that's okay because they can't, they can't affect international commerce, but they can't affect interstate commerce, which makes no damn sense whatsoever. No, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. It really doesn't. Well, and you know, from the lens of a person who came into the brewing myself, uh, who came into the brewing industry in you know two thousand, let's say two or three, um, here in the states, it has seemed, it seemed to me early on before I really knew anything at all about it, um, that it must have been often a good place to be. <laughs> sure, <laughs> that it must have been wholesalers who wrote this. Um, and, and, you know, because a lot of these regulations here in Michigan benefit exclusively wholesalers. Um, right. and I, you know, now I know what the deal is and here in Michigan, you know, certainly, um, it's interesting. I think that, you know, in the, in the, in the late seventies, early eighties, um, there were functionally four breweries that were being sold. I mean, of course there were more, but right. not really, um, yeah. here in Michigan, we still had the last echoes of like Stroh's. Um, and then the national guys, the other national guys. Um, and so you had, you know, hundreds of these mom and pop distributorships who were really at the whim of any of these huge, you know, national companies um, who could just demolish them, right? I don't like the way your trucks look. Not you anymore. Now it's you, right? Yeah. Um, that, that destroyed families. It happened, right? Yep. Um, didn't happen a lot, but it, but it happened and it well, could happen. And, and to be fair... Again, a lot of those laws came out of repeal because before prohibition, one of the major reasons for prohibition was not that they didn't want you drinking, was not that they didn't want you spending your paycheck on booze instead of on your family. One of them was political corruption, right? Because the um, the big brewers were so powerful, right? And and when I say big brewers, I don't mean two or three. I mean we're talking about like twenty or thirty right across the country because it was split up that much still. Right. I mean, they could put a retailer out or in business because they yep. were doing the same thing to them. And that's why in when repeal came along, wholesalers, I mean, wholesalers became a requirement. You right. had to buy from the wholesaler and you had to sell your beer to the wholesaler because they didn't want, they wanted like a cutout switch between the producer and the retailer. Right. Because they didn't want them controlling because, I mean, they were doing... God, there was a big case in uh, Texas where they were like running elections. They had so much money to spread around in bars, and it was it was a big deal. So it, it 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 certainly was, and and I know that a lot of the regulations here in Michigan were rewritten to protect uh, those those family distributors. Yeah. Um, even you know certainly early on, but uh, then later in uh, again in the seventies and eighties. And that's great. Uh, it's understandable why that happened. Uh, but the situation that we find ourselves in now here in Michigan, it's I not think the it's, same. It's the opposite. Right? Yeah, right. Um, you know, myself, my wife run Old Nation. She runs a restaurant. I run the brewery. We do whatever, 20, 25,000 barrels of beer a year. It's profitable beer. It's fine, right? It's a nice, comfortable brewery. Yeah. Um, and I've worked for 20 years to make it so. Uh, and... Um, you know, I have I have I have zero power when it comes to distributors because they still have those protections 
yep. that operate as though I were some, you know, private plane owning corporation. Um, and, and it's 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 almost untenable here in Michigan. And I think it is in a lot of places. And it's not necessarily the way that we have to pay taxes or, or the way that we have to work with a distributor. That's OK. It's really the function of franchise law here in Michigan. Um, that's so problematic for, for I mean, brewers. You look at if they took away the 21st Amendment, all that shit would be illegal. Right. Yes. You, yes. you can't do that with food. You can't do that with freaking uh, electronics. You can't do that with clothing. It's illegal. But they get away with doing it because the 21st Amendment gives them so much power. Right. Yeah. Right. It, it's wild. Right. Yeah. I mean, if my brewery, let's just, you know, say ifs. If my brewery made $15 million in Michigan, right? I just want people who don't know about this to understand. Uh -huh. I am in a contract with a distributor whose territory is the entire state of Michigan, both the upper and the lower peninsula, right? Um, <clears throat> that's fine. Uh, that distributor is a distributor with whom I've worked for some time. But if that distributor were not selling my product or made a decision that was somehow damaging to my brand or company, um, I would have almost no recourse. Right. Meaning, I can't break the contract without an agreement to sell, from which agreement they profit exclusively. Which means they can sell my brand or have the option to sell my brand to another distributor for generally that's somewhere between three and seven times, and sometimes as high as ten, the annual revenue of that brand. So if I'm making my distributor $15 million, that price tag looks somewhere between 30 and $80 million for another distributor to buy. Now they can trade. That, that you don't see a dime of. I don't see a dime of it. Nope, yeah. not a dime. Not a penny, right? And in fact, I suffer potentially reduced right. service, right? And reduced all kinds of stuff while this is all being, being figured out. Yeah. Um, that's the law in Michigan. And I talked to one of our senators um, about it. And she was flabbergasted. She said, you know, that's not how it works. <laughs> Sorry. It is. She's like, well, don't you have contracts with these guys? Oh, I absolutely have contracts with them. Sure. And the contracts say any number. And they number all reinforce what I just said. Right. Right. Well, yeah. I, look, if, if there's something I want, it's probably against MLC's Michigan Liquor Control Commission code, right? Um, and right. so the contracts only really refer to MLCC code deciding ultimately what the nature of the relationship will be. Um, so anyway, I just kind of wanted to set the stage and let people know that that is what brewers at least are dealing with. It's a little bit different for liquor and a little bit different for wine, but yeah, you know, it's pretty fucked up, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not a great system for brewers at all. Which, and I got to say, if it's not a great system for brewers, that absolutely means it's not a great system for drinkers. Right, hundred percent. Yep. You know, because you are what what you are allowed to buy in different parts of the state is not in the control of the people who are actually selling it to you. Right. That's right. Yeah. Well, and it's something you know we have every year a release. I'm turning this into a therapy session, uh, <laughs> Doctor Lou Bryson. <laughs> Um, so lay down on my couch. Thank you. I'm already there. Um, so we have a release of uh, our most popular beer is called M43, right? Um, every spring we have a release of uh, we flavor it. We put some extract in it, strawberry extract. Now it's strawberry M43. It's a different label, and it's a big deal, right? So we release some um, whatever ten thousand case equivalents of this this beer, and um, it always goes poorly. 
right? Um, and what I mean is it's not delivered where it's supposed to be. Ah, Folks who were promised a certain amount don't get that amount, whatever, right? It's a train wreck. Um, and yes, what, they complain to you. They complain to me. Of right? course they do. <laughs> you need to you need to improve your business practices. This is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Now, let me say this. In the last five years, <clears throat> I've noticed, right? I have no idea whether this is doctor or not, but in the last five years, retailers have begun to understand <clears throat> that it ultimately probably isn't brewery's fault, right? When something happens that they get you right. know, some negative result from. But consumers absolutely do not. Um, and so, you know, it's another layer of if this were if I was making cornbread, right, um, I would have my cornbread, strawberry cornbread release and uh, everybody would go nuts. But I'd make 10,000 pans of strawberry cornbread. And if my distributor didn't distribute it correctly, I could easily say you have broken the terms of our contract. I am no longer your client. Right. Right. Um, but in this case, we just kind of sit back and field the phone calls and, you know, wait to pull our pants back up and move on. And, and, you know, to take it to the nuclear extreme, if you were so bold as to actually start telling the retailers, you know, here's what we did. Here's what the wholesalers did. And this is why you didn't get your strawberry cornbread. Right. You know, I mean, <laughs> because it's beer, they can just be like, oh, yeah, we're still your wholesaler. Don't sell that shit. Yep. Yeah. Seen it yeah, happen. Literally seen it happen. Travis, we did everything we could. Hey, by yes. the way, just just throw it away, right? Get it, get rid of it downriver somewhere, right? Yeah. Um, it, it happens. Yeah. I mean, it happens yes, every it day. Yeah, it does, and people deny it, but it's bullshit. <laughs> it happens. It, and again, this is not, I you know, hashtag not all distributors, I guess, right? Absolutely. I mean, oh my God, yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, there are still, thank God, wholesalers out there whose main interest is building brands and making money for everybody. Uh, we have a distributor, for example, in Chicago, right? Heartland Beverage is their name. Okay. Uh, he, yeah. wor he worked for a distributor for, you know, whatever, about 20 years. Opened up this distributorship, brand-focused, relationship-focused, doing the right thing, right? Yeah. And no no notes, no complaints. It's great, right? Then what we find are we have these generational distributorships, which maybe I've found in the third generation becomes most problematic. Oh, yeah. Um, so like other businesses. Right. Exactly. Is that right? Found it, build it, screw it. Yeah. That's... yeah. Okay. <laughs> there you go, then. You um, go. We work with two of those, right? Three now um, of these, you know, multi-generational distributorships where I mean, it is so much corporate speak and, and just ridiculousness that they're trying to vertically integrate the process as though brewers are, you know, they're, you know, a part of their company and sort of operate, right. you know, to further their goals. And I am the kind of person that says, go fuck yourself when that kind of thing comes up in a meeting. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and imagine that does not resonate. <laughs> you know? No, no. So, you know, I guess we can probably move on from me, you know, having this therapy session with you, Lou, about about distributorships. But, you know, it's it's a thing that people don't understand. They don't understand how much that drives things. Right. It really right. does. It really yeah. does. Tell tell us a little bit to end the conversation, maybe about distributorships. What's fighting them like? Or what was it like for you fighting with them? Oh, you know, to be honest, I've worked with them. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, mostly. I mean, I. Uh, I <laughs> I um, 
I helped one of our uh, Pennsylvania wholesalers go from being a uh, a big brand house to a a major craft house. Uh, I worked with their communications department for a while. I mean, I I took money for them, and it cost me cost me jobs because I couldn't write for. I had a poss- I had a shot at being the post for the of columnist for the Washington Post, a beer columnist, and had to turn it down because I was taking money from a from the business. And and you know, that's wow. That's how it goes. On the other hand, I had a I think I had a nice influence on beer supply in Pennsylvania. Um, and I got them to uh, to think about how to sell craft beer, which was actually kind of and let's segue here. Please. <laughs> Cause one of, I know one of the reasons um you guys reached out to me was the piece I did for the full pint about flagships and yep. why don't we keep brewing the same beer and why do we brew new beers all the time? That's a direct um, link there because I did that. I, you know, I, I got these guys going on selling craft beer when they didn't know they had no interest in it. And the uh, owner's wife and I literally talked him into it. She was, she was pushing hard for it because she saw that as the future of the business and she was right. And okay. So I got, um, I was a major influencer on getting session beer accepted in, in American craft brewing, uh, Baltic Porter. I, I pretty much brought in even rye whiskey. I had a, a fair amount of influence on, and I realized that every time I did, I, I did have something to do with some of these fairly big changes in in booze it wasn't because i called people stupid or got angry with them right it's because i worked with them and convinced them and persuaded them and said this is why i like this shit you should try it too maybe you'll like this shit and that's kind of you know i have to i have to be looking at that um because i really would like to see ah i i feel that the constant new beer new beer new beer thing is you know it has some it has some negative effects. I think and it's you, I think it's almost entirely problematic. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, there are there are consumers that really like it. It's fun, but sure. What's your what's your fun costing you? What's your and, fun costing you? Right, exactly. Um, and I I see that it doesn't have to be that way because the brew pub in my town, the, the literally the brew pub that's the reason we moved to this town. It's it's a three minute walk down the hill. They have the same five beers on every day, have had them on since they opened the same five beers. And then they have, I guess it's up to four rotating taps now. Sure. When I, when I first started going there, they had one rotating tap and that was it. And and you know what? Those five beers still sell because right. they're dialed in. They make them every freaking week. Well, that... I mean, that's how I learned to brew. That's how Germans brew beer. Right, exactly. Why would you make another beer? This is a good beer, right? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and I mean, a respect for the amount of time it takes to really and truly even understand, but then master any given style. I mean, if you want to encompass all nuance, it takes a long time. Um, It's not something. I don't care how good the Pilsner was the first time you brewed it. Yep, you could do better. <laughs> you do better. Um, and 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 really, you know, let's even talk about anything but Schwarz beer uh, as it is now. Um, but you know, if we're talking about uh, wheat beer, right? Uh, all of those things. Man, I spent the first 
12 or 13 years of my career really only focusing on about five German styles, right? Yeah. Um, I would I would kick out IPAs and shit because that's that that isn't all that difficult to make a credible one, but um, <laughs> but it's it is difficult to there are nuances there too. Yeah, um, there's just a whole lot of noise you can hide behind if you wish. Um, so, you know, I spent years trying to make and sell. I mean, I made and did not sell a uh, a, a pilsner, uh, Czech pilsner, between like 2006 and 2012 uh, here in Michigan, an alt beer. Um, you know, those are the the beers I was trying to make and losing everyone around me and myself a great deal yes. of money, right? Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> right, um, I, I at some point was like, you know what, fuck it, my kids got to go to college, I'm going to make a oh, yeah. IPA, right? Sure. Um, and so I did, and God bless it, it made us a whole boatload of money, and we were able to get back into doing the styles that we like to do. Yeah. But. Now we are caught between, and I'm telling you this because I, you know, I think that this is not a unique story, right? Um, that now we're caught between the people that found out about us through New England IPA, who are not interested in us doing anything else but that. Right. Um, and then those people who would be interested in a brewery doing things like, uh, you know, lagers and alt beer and all this kind of stuff, but are not because who we are to them is our folks who have made New England IPA, even though only a very small part of my 20 some year career has been making New England IPAs, right? Yeah. Yep. I'm not able to market. I don't have the budget for it. I don't know how to tell that story. Um, and I think that there are a lot of brewers like me who've been brewers for 20 years so years who are good brewers are the ones you trust the ones you know who are in this position as a writer is this yeah. making any sense to you and what do you what do yeah and what do you think the well answer? i mean there's been a i mean i got the inspiration from that story from uh a quote that had been going around on on social media and let me just i want to make sure i get this right it's from uh Kate Burnett, and she it was in Beer and Brewing. Kate uh, is from my Kate's very smart. Uh, she's <laughs> and she's one of my one of my top five writers. Yep. Uh, and the quote was from uh, a bar in again. I want to be sure uh, the Kaiser Tiger Bar in Chicago. So okay. the guy is saying essentially, you know, we're going to stick with a, a beer and and hold on to it, and it's going to be a clean line. It's going to be fresh beer. And and said, you know, we're we're committing to that because when people are spinning beers around, they never get a chance to make them really good. You know, you make right. them once, right? It could be better. But my response to that, and I'm like, this is great. I love this. This is great. And my response is, just who the fuck's going to tell the consumers about this? <laughs> you know, right? right. You've got to have them on board, and they are not. Right. They're generally not. No. Except. A place down the hill, you know, these guys drink, they drink copper ale. I'm not shitting you. They drink copper ale. They drink brown ale for shit's yes. sake. Two Wonderful. of the beers they have on and have always had on are a brown ale and a porter. And people be like, no, I'm going to have the brown tonight. Yeah. Like, I love this. Yeah. You know, yeah. but how do you, how do you get to that point? Well, I, I think know. you had said Maybe it was when we were talking before the podcast or early in the podcast. Mm. I think it was before. You had talked about how um, 
I think we were talking about cellaring beers or whatever. Mm. And uh, the comment that you made was, I think we got too close to wine on that one. Yes, right? that's right. That was, yeah, I, I mean, I filed that one. I'm like, I'm writing a piece about this. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, before you do. I mean, back in the day, back in the 90s, when I was, because I really did start out writing about beer. I started writing about beer in 94. I really didn't switch to, to whiskey until like late 96, early 97, because craft beer kind of went sideways in the mid 90s. Um, one of the things we talked about, and Fritz Maytag was one of the people right out in the front of this, was how do we get people to think more about beer like they think about wine? And looking back on it, I think we were way too successful. Yeah. <laughs> you know? right. Well, yeah. and I don't mean to, you know, I know how this is going to come off. I hope it's understandable. I, 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 I don't mean to say, I don't mean to say beer is the exclusive drink of the proletariat, but it kind of is. You know what I mean? It's the drink of the in Philistine. The US, in right. the U.S., yes. I mean, in France, it's the other way around. Sure. Oh, yeah. Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, so, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but well, uh, except in, except in Alsace, right? <laughs> Which is Germany, but they speak. I know that's what the, the old guy at the German bar I used to go back home. He would always say, "Really belongs to us." Like, yeah, not that one. Well, yeah, mean, he always he always there. had Kronborg, and that was his reason for having Kronborg. <laughs> that it was really a German beer, right? Anyway, yeah, I mean, but even if you go there, that's what it looks like. It's oh weird my god, yeah. To see these, I remember talking to um, what the hell's the brewery there? Meteor. Okay. Um, they actually, there was a, a French restaurant in Philadelphia. The guy got his importer license so he could bring meteor pills in. And I went to the launch and the woman who owned the brewery was there. And she's talking French to me and she spoke it with such a German accent. I could understand her and I don't speak French. It was bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, no, it really is. Sorry, we, we really went off the rails there. No, 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 no. no. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what, I guess what I'm talking about is the beer culture that I that was given to me right away by you know having lived in Munich as a teenager and then in Berlin yeah. you know as a college student was a much more there wasn't anything fancy about it no right? no that, it was, that, it was, was what you did every day that's right it was very yeah. serious business and there were yes. certain immutable expectations that were put upon it um, but it was the drink of everyone right yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, and, if, and to be fair, if 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 anything, even more so in the check, right? Right. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely, hundred yeah. percent. But yeah. I would say those are all. You know, you can go back into the political, all the sort of history of Bohemia and all that sort of yes. stuff. Yes. But um, and the Hanseatic trade routes and, and and all these interesting things. Yeah. Um, and how they influenced and say functionally that from that perspective, the Czech Republic and Germany are pretty much the same, right? Um. But of course, those cultures have 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 shifted, uh, you know, recently a little bit, even in terms of beer drinking. Anyway, yep. um, I guess my 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 point here is to try and I have no point, but my goal here is to try mm. and define this. I'm going to say it like this: this, from a German perspective, frippery, right? Uh, that has existed in the craft beer market in the United States. For a while, um, mm -hmm. where it is about, you know, how fucked up can the label be and how crazy and square freaking out can the name be? Um, and how many things can I put in this beer that are not beer and make it taste more not like beer um, in order to, as I said, freak out squares and uh, get noise going about this brewery, right? Yeah. And then um, how about those people you mentioned earlier that 
you know, the whiskey people that don't want to drink it if it's too easy for other people to drink. Right. And 100%. They, they exist, yes. right? right? Yeah. Uh, I am an explorer. I am an adventurer, right? I think this is the mindset, um, which is fine. It's also yeah. fine. I mean, I was. Sure. Me too. Yeah. For a while. Yeah. When I was drinking Lambic in the early 80s, that was crazy. It was. It is still. Yeah. Uh, but it's also very disciplined and the process is very rigorous and it takes yes. so much training. And, you know, it's, it's just not something as, we didn't know. Right. Yeah. You can almost feel an alambic. I'm putting too much on this probably, but you can almost feel an alambic all of that. Right. Yeah. I don't, I don't feel that in a bourbon barrel aged 12% stout with Hershey's chocolate, marshmallows and graham crackers. In it, right. That seems to me like somebody had an idea and, uh, was happy to inflict it on an unsuspecting public, right? Yeah. Um, again, I don't mean to be an old man yelling at clouds here. It, all that is fine. But that kind of became the point of American beer there for a little while. And that, I, I don't think it was good I've for I've also ha long had a problem with this kind of shit being called innovation. Oh, um, God. Well, me too. I say you, it all the time. If you're making, a, if you're making a, a brown ale and you decide to throw in three more sacks of malt, that's not right. innovation. That's just no. putting more beans in a burrito. That's all right. that is. Look, I have a I have a coffee brown ale. I put coffee in a brown ale. It says it right on the label. That's not innovation. No. That was no. me saying, you know, people probably buy this and it's not going too far outside of my box and let's try it, right? Well, not to mention you're really just dialing up a component that's already there. Uh, 100%. It's, it yeah. takes no genius whatsoever, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, it takes no real aptitude, frankly. It just... It's fine, right? There's no problem yeah. with it. it you know what? Um, there's a there's a Canadian whiskey, uh, Alberta Dark Horse. Mm -hmm. the, uh, Alberta Distilling makes it. And because they're in Canada, they can do. So instead of getting sherry barrels and like finishing it in a sherry barrel, they had 1% sherry because they can do that. Right. Brilliant. And I have no problem with that. I don't right. get why people freak out about it because it tastes delicious and it makes an amazing Manhattan. But... You know, if they took and put, oh, I don't know, um, what, uh, marshmallows in it. Right. I would have a problem with that. Yes. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, that's yeah. completely outside of the realm. I don't know. But on the other hand, I don't want to be that guy that says, no, don't do that. Right. I just kind of want to be the guy that says, do you really have to do it again? Right. <laughs> no, that's the guy I want to be. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Thank you. <sighs> exactly. Yes. Right. <laughs> um. But I mean, you know, you you talk about you. They can in in, in Canada. Like I grew up brewing uh, under the Reinheitsgebot, right? I I don't know you one. Could not German, do that, <laughs> right? I don't know one German brewer who likes the Reinheitsgebot. Not one, right? <laughs> <laughs> because I'm sure they exist. I have not. Yeah. Met them. Um, the, it, I mean, it's so restrictive. You have to produce your own souring bacteria. In order to adjust pH, which is extremely important yeah. for your beer in your brewery without distilling it for consistency or anything at all, right? You can get close. It's so much extra. What I'm saying is that this is nobody yeah. gives a shit about this. It's so restrictive and it's so many hoops to jump through. But, right? German beer is German beer and respected as such oh, yeah. in part because of the legend of the Reinheitsgebot, right? Yeah. Um, so what do we protect? Do we bother? What is even American craft beer and where is it going? These are questions that I ask beer writers 
because I want to put somebody on the spot like I get put on the spot all the time. You know, I, I still come back to that that same thing that I had as a response to the quote. This is all great, but you got to get the drinkers to do it. And, <laughs> you know, because essentially we educated them into this. Right. You know? the, be the best way I've found to explain to craft beer drinkers even who will listen um, why I like to make and drink continental styles of beer or more traditional styles of beer, even English styles, Belgian, is that taking Pilsner as an example. Mm -hmm. To me, who has played music all my life, I view Pilsner as, uh, as, as something like jazz or classical music, right? Um, there, is a, there is a certain box in which you need to work in order to make that music sound like it is. Right. Um, and that uh, the point of that music is much different than something like punk, for example, which to me is a lot more like American, uh, modern American craft beer. Uh, it's loud. It's everything all the time. The right? large part about punk is making a statement. Like you yeah, said, 100%. Right. That is, I mean, and it's legit. Right. Yeah. You know? I mean, and it's American as hell, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Whereas, you know, with classic and jazz, I mean, it's a box. It's a pretty freaking big box. It's a big box. It's you a know? big box. I mean, because you think back on it and, um, I mean, composers like, uh, well, shit, even Beethoven sure. almost caused riots. You know, right. people are just like, what is this bullshit? Right. Well, and, and you could do that with a Pilsner. Right. And, and I guess my viewpoint on it is that the box you're in when you're playing, let's say, classical or jazz has a lot more to do with how based in technique and study your playing is. Um, and if it is not based in technique and study, then you will not perform at a high level in either of those disciplines. Right. Um, whereas yeah. punk, man, I can teach you four chords tomorrow. And even if you drop your guitar halfway through the song, it's going to be fine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and look, there are difficulties in making imperial stouts and IPAs, and you can examine them and study them and make fantastic examples. And a lot of brewers have done that. Um, but you can also not know what the hell you're doing and make a passable one, right? Um, you, you cannot, I don't think you really can do that um, with lagers, but of course I'm biased. So anyway, this is the way that I tell people, like lagers are jazz, you know, craft ales are, are punk. Do you get it right? There, there's got to be something that punches you in the nose. There has to be a definable point to that beer that separates it from other beers. Whereas with Pilsner, you move a, you move a small ball in a small box around just a little bit to express yourself, and then you leave it forever, right? Yeah. Um, Michael Jackson had a story. He used. To, I heard him tell it at least three times. Um, Essentially, you uh, you know you go to a German brewer and you say, Hans, your Pilsner is fantastic. It's delicious. It tastes almost exactly like Fritz's Pilsner three miles down the road. And Hans will say, well, yeah, that's how you make a Pilsner. Yeah. Right, right. Well, you go to the Belgian brewer and you say, Jean-Luc, your golden ale is delicious. It's wonderful. But, you know, it's not really that much like Pierre's golden ale down the road is nah, Pierre's beer, that's shit. This is my beer. And that's, you know, right there, yeah, there's the difference. Yeah, it um, is, absolutely. And and another um again, while we were while we were talking things just because that's how the writer's brain works, um the uh the whole punk thing, it is it is definitely not about about technique. Um, 
and it's not even about passion because brewers are if you're a good brewer you really want to make good beer that day that is the thing you want to do yep unless you're hungover you know and then you just want to get through the day but even then over week over week what you want to do is make really good beer and the punk rock brewer i would argue has a different path and a different goal they want to make beer that is going to be for a good reason you know they want to they want to say something and i think that's i think that's valid i mean it's kind of like the the whole thing i have a a thing about um why do you drink craft beer do you drink craft beer because you think it tastes really good or do you drink craft beer because you like supporting local small businesses and you don't want to support corporate giants right Either one of those is a good reason to drink craft beer. And 100%. you should stop freaking arguing about it, okay? Yeah, because if I want to drink a really good beer, a lot of times I don't give a shit who's making it. Another thing uh, about what the, about the shit you put in beer and, you know, you just fling stiff in the kettle. Speaking as someone who grew up as a beer drinker through the um, mid-90s to about 2005, when... Sam Calgione was just getting Dogfish Head up and running, and I was lucky enough that he was sending us samples from the get-go because Whiskey Advocate started as a beer magazine. Yeah. So Sam was sending us stuff, and I remember him saying at a talk one time, um, says, you know, we kind of have an edge on everybody because we tried the shit that didn't work really early on. I'm like, yes, you did. Yes, Yes, you did. Freaking well did. Oh, my God. Well, but, you I, know, I mean, I think it couldn't be anything but sour grapes from a brewer to, to talk any shit about Dogfish Head at this point. You know what I mean? Yeah, they, they figured it out, right? Yep. They cracked the code. Yep. Um, and, and a lot of brewers have. And again, I don't I don't mean for this to be, a, you know, things that should go back to the way that they were. But Oh, I, no. No. You know, I, I don't want that. No. Because uh, to but, be honest, there were a lot of shitty pilsners back then. And so, Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, there were home brewers making Pilsner in July in a bucket. Right. That, that my friend, is not a Pilsner. No. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but in any event, I, I do think that that um, what's one thing, and I know this isn't exactly your, your bailiwick, but I, I know that you're interested in this kind of thing. Um, one of the things is that brewers, as we were forming our guilds, neglected completely to incorporate, in most cases, I think in damn near all cases, neglected to incorporate education or training of brewers coming into the field uh, as a part of the function of those guilds. Um, And at this late date, I can say in Michigan, which has a relatively strong brewers guild, and it does matter to brewers that the guilds in their states are strong or weak. um, You know, we have so many, 350 plus breweries in the state. And most of those breweries are guys who were lawyers and cashed in part of their retirement and bought a bar that had shut down fun. and started a one-barrel brewery, right? Yeah. They're not brewers. Uh, they're they're good guys, and they may become brewers, right? Um, but they're they're really kind of just doing home brewing really loud, right? Right, right. Um, which is fine. I mean, I don't mean to say that's not okay, but I mean, in the structure of the guild, it's really difficult for somebody like me to say, look, or the couple other brewers, you know, here in the states that have been doing this, or the state who that have been doing this for a long time and have some formal education to say, listen, there are training programs that we went through that are hundreds of years old, right? That have evolved over hundreds of years. They're good. They're pretty basic. I think everybody should know this stuff. 
can we all get together and say that, you know, if you haven't done that, you'll sign on and do it, right? Um, and can the guild then fund that? And the answer to that question is yes, the guild could fund that. Um, and the pushback to that is really intense. Oh, it's intense, right? Oh. I don't need, you know, I don't need some bureaucratic brewer to teach me how to make beer. And I'm like, man, I'm teaching you how to keep your shit clean, bro, right? Um, <laughs> I'm teaching you how to treat your yeast. I don't care what you put the yeast in. Yeah, right? I mean, I would I would say at the at the bare minimum, everybody who has a tap room should have to go through some kind of draft maintenance training at Dear a God. very minimum, right? Wow, right? I mean, and it's so easy, right? Yes, the yeah, principles it's just, are easy. It's just rote. That's what right. you get. You just you, you really have to do it yeah. when it's time. Yeah, it's like well, I am fish. certain to see. Um, Tap rooms. I was just in one over the weekend where they have, you know, lines were cleaned and then a grease yeah. pencil, you know, when when they were cleaned. But it doesn't. I mean, you know, it takes a couple hours a week. It's fine, right? It's no yeah. problem. Right. Um, just part of the job. And again, it's no harder to learn than washing dishes is. It's, it's very no. easy. You know, it is. It is this. Um, it is this, this. This disconnect between from brewers between. You know, look, I did this and I deserve to be appreciated for it and I don't need your education, right? Um, to brewers like myself who have been through a lot of different companies and seen them rise and fall and fail yeah. and succeed, um, who are just saying, listen, man, I'm trying to set up a situation like I came up in where brewers are really discussing pretty problematic things within the industry and trying to build consensus among us in order to have some sort of a sense of a rising tide floats all boats. Right? Yeah, you, I mean, you want this for the for the good of the industry. Right, for yeah. real. I mean, I remember <laughs> a brewery in Pennsylvania that was making beer so bad, the other brewers were talking about an, a, like an intervention, just like, look, we'll come in and clean up your brewery. Right, right. We'll, we'll write SOPs for you, if that's what it right. takes. Yeah, and the I, guy didn't want it, wouldn't do it. I won't name the brewery. No, 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 no. no. And it doesn't matter. Came, I opened up Old Nation and met with a number of uh, brewers near us. Um, they were trying to put together a collective in Southeast Michigan, I guess. And uh, we were the farthest out in the country. Sat by, brought my beer. I think it was maybe a coach that we had here and then all whatever and all beer. It was just traditional shit. And uh, everybody brought beer to share. And the loudest guy at this meeting um brought out a growler of beer and he said nothing about it It was very much you know shrouded and poured it out for everyone you know a little sample and uh, i drank it and it was the most frustrating and confusing beer i've ever drank in my life no part of it was well executed <laughs> and uh I, I did you know you get in these situations where you you will be expected to say something right about yeah this. yeah we're going around this table and I said, you know, I, I don't, when it came my turn, I, d I don't understand this. I don't understand what this is supposed to be. Um, I don't understand what you're trying to do. Can you please explain it to me? This is him talking. Now, here's a German brewer, right, who's not going to understand this. But for the rest of you, right, haven't you guys ever thought about putting barbecue sauce in beer? Right? Well, not only did I do that, I put two different brands of barbecue sauce. <laughs> one, of which, one of which was Sweet Baby Ray's. So, um, you know, uh, you know, you gotta sit back and, and uh, expect the applause. Um, and I just, I'd seen that before. That wasn't the first time something like that had happened. Yeah. I was in his mid fifties, right? 
And I just was like, oh, God, where are we going? What What is happening here, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, you log online and you see people going, now here's a guy with some balls. Barbecue sauce and beer, oh, yeah. right? But, uh, but, 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 but part of it, and a frustratingly necessary part, I think, because without those guys, there really isn't a lot of forward motion. Oh, no, you got to push at it. And, and that's, you know, other people will get better ideas from it. Right. Um, I mean, I not I used in, in a, uh, the New York State Guild uh, competition, which, uh, I mean, I've been, the first time I did it because they asked and, and I knew some of the guys. So I'm like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. I mean, since then, I have done it because it's a really good competition. Um, they Their standards are extremely high. Right. But one of the beers I judged uh, this latest session was a beer where all the water in the beer was maple sap, not syrup, but sap they had collected. It was freaking amazing. And I, I mean, that's the kind of innovation I like seeing. You Could, know? Did it carry through at all or just... Oh, just nice. wow! Just there, you know. Wow. And and the thing wow. was, I I, I want to say it was, it, it was a big style. It was like a barley wine, but you know, not over hopped, not not under attenuated. Just, oof. yeah, yeah. good barley wine. Maritime. Yeah, yeah, you know, like like making maple syrup from an ant or something. I, right. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> like, but I mean, we wow. we have this we have this joke, right? There's a, a group of older you know, brewers that have been around a while. Um, and uh, it is, you know, what's a good barley wine, right? Our consensus as older brewers is crisp Maris Otter, Fuggle Hops, right around 20 degrees Play-Doh, pray to God your yeast makes it through, and you're done, right? Yeah. That's yeah. a good barley wine. Don't dress it up. No, no, <laughs> no. Anyway. Uh, and I would I would prefer to have that just be like a – a well-made creme brulee, not a mango creme brulee, right. not a creme brulee with anise seed on the top. No, just. Well, ex experience, you're right. Experiencing an interpretation that you can almost enjoy like you'd enjoy listening to a new piece of music, right? That you, you really do have to quiet your mind. Yes. You know, and, and accept it as it is without judgment as at first, right? Um, and then if it confuses you and it's frustrating, then you can take another drink and think about why that is. Um, and if it doesn't and goes the other way, then you do the same thing, right? Yeah. But to experience it, um, as opposed to, you know, your first thought being, does it taste like something else I've had that is supposed to be like this? No, it doesn't. I don't like it. Let me figure out how to, <laughs> right? <laughs> Good delivery. Excellent delivery. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <Yep>. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's why that's why we we're in the big bucks out here at Old Nation. That's right. <laughs> so you know, I I I think you know not to go down more rabbit holes and all this kind of yeah. stuff, but the the culture of of experiencing things, I think in general, has changed in the you know, like I said, I'm 43 years old. It has certainly changed since I've been alive, right? Sure. How do we consume things, right? What do we seek from that consumption? Um, and how do we build then ourselves, you know, through that consumption? Um, I, I would, if that makes any sense to you at all, I would love to hear what you what, what your thoughts are about that. Well, I mean, you, you can come at it from a from a couple of different ways. I mean, first off, we already do that. We do have different ways of of consuming and different reasons, and um, I mean, different people 
have those different reasons within themselves. You so, know, I do it for this reason now. I'm doing it for that reason for now. And you, you chances are you aren't even, you know, consciously aware of that. Sure. But by the same token, um, I mean, I just saw that a um, uh, a brew pub in Philadelphia is is closing down operations where it is, and it's been there for a while. It's an old fire hall, and I remember when I first went there ten years ago, walking in and thinking, "Oh my God, this is what it was like in the '80s." Yeah, you know, because oh, yep. it was concrete floor and kind of chip tile, and yep. and a brewery in the back that you could see the brewer stirring the goddamn mash. Yep. You know, strip down, kick the tires, light the fires, and let's make some beer. Yep. And then we, you know, then we got white linen tablecloths and all that. And then we went to the, like, garage band phase of brewery tap rooms. Yeah. You know, like, boards sitting on barrels and like, here you go. Here you yeah. go. I mean, right. I remember one guy that just had, a, like, a pigtail dispenser off the tanks, and that's all he was doing. <laughs> no, spraying it with alcohol every time you served, and then like that, and I'm like, oh, that doesn't make the experience better. Different. Well, yeah, but you know what? <laughs> the thing is, and and this is what I said in the um in the piece about uh, drinking the same beer more often. Yeah, we have grown to the point where we can have that many different ways of doing things. Sure. You know, there's room for them. It doesn't all have to be the same way. And and God knows, none of this has to be. You know, some of it yes. would be would be nice. Some of it would be great. But we have, and and I think this is the the best thing that has happened from this. And and in and in craft distilling as well. You know, we have the space and the room to do whatever the hell we want. And yep. you know, not to get all libertarian, but the market's going to sort it out. And and it does, you know. I mean, this is an intensely competitive and yet cooperative industry. You know, right. we're all all pushing towards. I don't know. I want to don't want to say the same thing, but you know, roughly in the same direction. And yet, at the same time, <clears throat> if you're not making good beer, you're probably not going to make it. Right. Well, I hope you know from my from my part. Right. I hope everybody makes it. You know, if we're successful, then I hope. I yes. Yeah, I mean, I'd like to see everybody, everybody making good beer and selling oh, plenty of it. Yeah, right. Well, I, I hope I hope everybody gets there, but I hope I get there first. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just want to stay relevant for another few five years until I can retire. That's all I want. That's all you I got. I, yeah, I, you got it, man. I've been reading your <laughs> It's great. Um, so it, it's uh, it's man, it's it's so fascinating to have you on, and I think that we could probably go for another hour. But oh God, I, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, but I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll leave, or we will try maybe to leave, with this. Um, when we, you know, when we talk about the development of um, the drinker's palate over time, um, as it relates to craft beer, we really kind of have to look at the folks who've been drinking it the longest, right? And where are they? Where, where do they find themselves now on that, on that journey? Um, and of course, in, in the aggregate, there are going to be outliers and there's going to be, you know, then the inner fringe and then kind of the fat middle. I'm really talking about the fat middle here. Yeah. And saying, I don't think that a return to tra traditional styles is going to be the end of this cycle of craft brewing. I do think that traditional styles will be part of it. I honestly think that brewers like myself are going to have to figure out or continue to figure out how to take traditional techniques 
and reinterpret what's been happening over the last, let's say, 15 years in ways that are more economically viable, um, mm. in ways that are more reproducible, and in ways that are more um, consumable to the general public. Um, I think that's probably going to be part of it, but that's about as far as I can see into the future. And uh, I'm not asking you to be some sort of seer, but no, um, I, just, I, I mean, uh, there is a let me go a little bit far afield. I was talking to the code board about uh, remodeling our house because we have a we have an old we bought an old house and we wanted to do some stuff with it. And I said, you know, I'm concerned that it's going to be we're going to run into a problem with the historical review board. And the guy says, well, the thing you want to do, you want to stand out, not stick out. I'm like, that's a great line, right? And he he got the whole idea of that in one thing. So for brewing and traditional styles and absolutely non-traditional styles, I think the thing that I'd like to see going forward is to reach back, not go back. I, I, I want to reach back and grab some of those ideas and techniques that have been, been not been used, bring them forward into the future, grab the shit that we are doing, weld that together and, and go get it. I mean, I yeah. did. A, I remember I did a, a humor piece one time. What if, uh, uh, what the hell was his name? Uh, Bush, the original Bush. I can't remember his first Augustus, name. Augustus, I'm sure. Uh, probably the guy who <laughs> went to the guy who went to Bohemia and found all these techniques. He's like, this will make a pretty good beer in America. What if? as he was getting off the steamer in Liverpool, about to get onto the train to go over to Europe and do all this shit. Instead, he saw a pretty woman, which he was noted for having an eye for, going into a pub or walking by one. And instead, he got hooked on real ale. Right. I got to tell you, we would be drinking the best fucking pale ale in the world right now. 100%. And that's 100%. where I want to go. I want to I mean, you know, right. take everything we have, all the technology we have, all the process and technique and weld it to the people who are really doing like that maple sap beer, right. you know, people who are making truly innovative shit and right. put all of that together and then, you know, jump on the back of that thing and open the throttle. Utopia. See, see where we go. Yeah. 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 This, is, this is a utopian view, man. I would be it's, phenomenal. Like I said before, now we How just got to get the drinkers to the <laughs> Yeah, come on yeah. board. Come on, it'll be fun. <laughs> this is interesting. Listen, people always go for this. This is interesting because I personally am very intelligent and understand better than you do what you should be drinking. I think yeah, that's, that works. It. That really works in politics too. I've noticed. Yeah, it's the yeah. pitch. Yeah, it's it's the only pitch. Oh um, my god. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, man, what a what a what a good time talking to you. Yeah. I, uh, I I I don't know what the point in all of this was. I think I, I lost know. it early on. Um, but what a what a what a what a what a great conversation, man! Thank you yeah. so much for joining a lot us. Of fun. Absolutely, glad you guys get in touch. All right, yeah, we'll uh, you know we will probably scrap all of this and come back to you again and yeah. <laughs> see if you want to do it again. Yeah, <laughs> okay. it's a rehearsal. Uh, maybe, maybe who knows? We strike gold. Yeah, but uh, Lou, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to, to to reading more of your writing, and I hope anyone who's uh, listening to this podcast will go back into the ar archives, read what you've already written, um, and continue to read it. And uh, I wish you that easy path into retirement that you talked about. I thank think you. you have plenty of opportunity, man. <laughs>
Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Cheers, man.